Let us turn now in our Bibles to 1 Samuel 7. We'll be reading just two verses from 1 Samuel 7. As we have gone through a great, uh, the, the whole rather, of the Ark narrative, we are now coming out to the other side of it. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we'll be reading verses 3 and 4. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. 1 Samuel 7, starting in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. We have indeed been through the Ark narrative. It's a great section here in 1 Samuel uh, where the Ark went into captivity, into the Philistine land, and there came back to Israel. And last time we were in 1 Samuel, we were examining that great truth that God came back to Israel. He was not prompted by Israel to do so, and Israel did not go into the Philistine land to bring the ark back, which is the object of God's, which signaled God's presence in Israel. And so today we are continuing in that same theme, that God came back. It continues to be relevant to our discussion here. As we examine only two verses, which is unusual perhaps uh, from what we have been doing in First Samuel up until now, to look upon the repentance of Israel. We see in our text Israel's response, in fact, to God's justice and God's mercy. God had been merciful to come back to Israel at all. But now that the ark was indeed back, Israel had been judged because they started to cozy up to the ark in a different manner than before and were judged for it. We saw this in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel. That is, although God had come back, the relationship between God and Israel had not changed. There was not a new, more lax, less righteous relationship no, it was the old relationship, the original covenant relationship that we have of new hearts living holy lives before a holy God in the same way that Moses had set down in the Ten Commandments. Moses had said that Israel was to keep the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place and that it was not to be seen just by anybody in Israel as if it were a common museum piece. And that the Levites were to keep the Ark of the Covenant at the place which God would choose to settle his name. Now that Shiloh, which was where the Ark was before, had been destroyed in God's judgment, there had to be a new place, a place of worship where the Ark would settle and Israel would come to worship God. Although the Ark was sent, as we already saw in the last passage to Kiriath-Jerim, this was only a stopgap as it would eventually settle, of course, in Jerusalem some decades later. God had been just, is the point, to judge Israel's chummy demeanor towards the ark, which again represented his holy presence. But God had also been merciful 
to come back to Israel at all, as we have seen. We've noted many times before that it was not Israel that brought the ark back, but God came back by himself. And that fact continues to be relevant in our text. Israel doesn't repent of their sinful actions toward God in this passage until God comes back and audibly calls all of Israel to repent. For the Hebrew word here used for turn or return, as it is in our English Bibles, is the Hebrew word used for repent, as we saw in the book of Ruth, in fact. Now, certainly, Israel lamented after the Lord, in verse 2, so that there is something happening in Israel before this call, but this was also as a result of God's work. God started a work in Israel which resulted in lamenting. Why are they lamenting? Because Israel does not know how to proceed anymore. They had already tried manipulations, and now they tried what they thought were good works in chapter 6, but that didn't work. They offered sacrifices unto the Lord, but because they were chummy, 70 of them died before God after they had done the good works of sacrificing to God in chapter 6. God cannot let sin, and this is the point, simply be swept underneath the rug, even with good works. There must be repentance. Good works by evil people do not restore relationships. It would be like after a man had cheated against his wife, instead of repenting and asking for forgiveness, he brought her flowers and expect that, that the relationship would be restored by that act of good works. Israel was buying God flowers here, but he required repentance. And far more than this, God wanted Israel's heart, not merely their repentance. It does not do to simply ignore what is going on or to ignore the past wrongs of someone else and to do what is right simply. These Israelites thought that if they offered sacrifices to God, if they did right things in reference to him, then they would be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, to do that to God, to not seek forgiveness and merely to cover over with good works is manipulation again. They seek to manipulate God so that they don't have to repent. This is no different than dropping $20 into the offering plate after a night of drunken Saturday excess. Does God turn a blind eye to bad things if we do good things? Does God accept idolatry if you only do what is right before him sometimes, like coming to church? Heaven forbid. Our redemption is far greater than this. And even if God required repentance of these Israelites, so great his love for this evil people, when Israel refused to seek God, he sought Israel to acquire their repentance when they would not repent of themselves. He sent Samuel and said, verse 3, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. What do we learn about repentance in this passage? Three things happen especially in our text to reveal repentance. 
First, that God must act. He must act first, the initiator, as we have been discovering. Second, that man must hear that call to repentance from God. And third, the called must respond with action and faith. So how do we see this in our text? In short, we'll go over these more specifically as we go on. First, God came back first before any change in the hearts of Israel, as we have said. Beside also, God sending Samuel to Israel decades before, decades earlier from this time of repentance for this very purpose, to call them to repentance. And second, as Romans 10 tells us, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? This man, Samuel, was sent for this purpose, to preach to all of Israel repentance as he was instructed so that they might hear God's call. That is God's call to repentance. And third, Israel indeed heard all of Israel, as it says in this text, and responded with action in verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. See how the act of man is last, even in this text. This is contrary to our natural expectations, at least in human relationships. In our worldly expectations, the sinned against person is under no obligation to act to restore the relationship because he's been sinned against. The other person must come, so says the world. Wrong, if we are to take the example of our very own God. In non-Christian circles, this might be okay to wait until the sinner has repented to take away our vengeance. But according to God's own actions, this is incorrect. God, the offended party, acted for mercy for the other person and returned to Israel. Now Israel still needed to repent, and repentance is necessary for relationships to be restored. I'm not saying that repentance is taken away by the action of the other person. However, if God were to wait for Israel to repent, as perhaps we might do with other people, without his returning to them, then God would have to seek vengeance against Israel for their sin because they would never repent. And they would be utterly destroyed. Or perhaps if God were to wait for Israel to repent, all of Israel would have died unrepentant and would have been eternally damned for their own sins. God's actions here either save or damn Israel. So we're thankful that he starts and he is the one who initiates this action. So how does God accomplish this work that he starts? After first working himself, he second calls them to repentance. Of course, he uses Samuel to do this. What is the call to repentance? Well, again, repentance means turning. So that we must turn from something and necessarily turn to something. It is a turning, which of course he uses the same word, returning to the Lord with all your heart in verse 3. And from what? From idols. So he says that all, all that is not God meaning in these words from idols. Specifically, of course, he says, and this is in verse 4, Ashtaroth and Baal. These were used to represent all the other Canaanite gods, as there were just a multiplicity. It would have taken pages and pages to, to list all the different gods in which they had. God didn't just require the putting away, this is interesting to me, of the idols of their enemies, the Philistines. 
but of every single thing in all creation that rivals God for us. That is, unless the Israelites entirely turn away from every supposed deity besides God, according to God, that is not repentance. Repentance hates everything that vies for our soul and highest service, being in the Lord and the Lord alone. This can be a turning from what is at least essentially evil unto God, like turning from service to our own sexual desire unto God, or turning from worship, worshiping Allah to Yahweh. But we can also repent by turning from what is essentially good, what God has made good, but we have made bad by putting them in the place of God. For example, if you love your wife or your spouse more than you love God, even though your spouse is good and marriage is good, you have sinned and made an ashtoreth of her or him. What does this look like? If we say to ourselves, I could not live without him or her, in a more than sentimental sense, then you have not turned away from your idols, but made another before you in your own wife. Love your wives with abandon. Love your husbands with abandon. But the only thing you cannot do is be making them idols and without God. As God, the God of your life, is the God of life, if we were to make anything else an idol, then we would bring death upon ourselves. God may call you to be without your spouse, in other words, but he will never call you to be without God. The potential idols for the human heart are indeed near infinite, so I can only give you this one example for now, but as many objects of the human eye or human mind, there are idols. Why is this? Because we are religious by our very nature. We are worshipers by our very nature. We want to worship, and in fact, always worship. Go to any Taylor Swift concert, and you will understand what I am saying by worshiping. People cannot help but worship. It is in our nature. People cannot help but always have something, even if not themselves, in the slot which is to be worshipped and served. For scripture and for everyone in the whole of the world, in truth, there are only two options. You worship God or you worship the creature or the created thing. The principle that is work at work here is that there is no third option. We have faith in one thing and repent only to faith in another. We have faith in creaturely things or we have faith in the creator. When we repent, we change the object of our faith. And that is why there is very little difference between repentance and faith, in fact. Both are actions only men can do, which is why Israel is called by God to do them here, and both are actions which entail one another. Repentance and faith are, just as the saying goes, two sides of the same coin. So when you see repentance, you ought to look for faith. When you look for faith, you ought to look for repentance. And what, after repentance, are we fixing our faith upon? In this passage, it is fixing our faith upon Yahweh, in faith, knowing that he is merciful. 
and not only upon Yahweh simply, as if it were an easy thing to do, like the Muslims do when they turn towards Mecca. This is a turning of the whole man, the whole heart, completely towards God in every act and intention of our lives. God says in verse 3, Return to the Lord with all your heart. Fix your heart on the Lord and serve him only. There is no such thing as cheap repentance to God. Repentance is the whole of life in every aspect. A wholehearted repentance means a whole-souled hatred of what God hates and a whole-souled love of what God loves. Israel was lamenting so that we can discern that God was working in their hearts to make them hate their sins of which they loved before and to put away all the foreign gods in trust and earnestness of heart. However, whether it is true repentance, as far as we can tell, will be revealed more later on in our passage next time in the same sermon series. What we can discern from this text, however, is that God does not want anything less than complete and utter conviction of heart. He has gone to great lengths in 1 Samuel to secure this conviction of heart in the whole of Israel. He has not want merely knowledge. He has not want mere ceremony or sacrifice. God wants Israel's heart to be convicted of sin and convinced of the truth, not merely because sin is dangerous, but to hate it because it is evil. And God wants Israel to be convinced of the truth of God's word rationally and utterly because of the demonstrations that he has given, not merely to run from the danger of God's justice, but because it is right, true, good, and holy. Do we follow God because it is right? Have we been worked upon by the Holy Spirit in this manner? Are we running from God simply because there is pain involved, because he is just? Do we follow God because he is ultimate rationality, because he is true? Or do we follow God for convenience to run from pain? If you have turned toward God for mere convenience, then you have been lied to. Your repentance is cheap, and there is no cheap repentance. Repentance is only of the whole soul for the whole of life. But we must not end here. Israel turned toward God for a specific purpose. Why did they do that? Not only because they knew God to be true, not only because they knew God to be just, because they knew God to be merciful, and he extended that mercy to them, and God would save them mercifully from their enemies. This is our relationship to Christ, in fact. We repent to be saved in him, as he calls us to do in the Gospels, and it is only because we apprehend that there is mercy in Christ that we come, that he accomplished, that he did before we could ever repent, just as God does here God is our Savior in this, our passage to Israel, and in the New Testament, as we read in Acts 11 as well, that he works repentance in us and continues to do so. Yes, he requires repentance of those who are to be saved, but notice that he is their Savior before 
and after their repentance, even in this passage. He does everything necessary to secure their repentance. He, in theological terms, regenerates Israel that they might repent. The basis for our entire passage is the favor of God upon Israel. God came back. He did not have to come back, but he came back because of his favor and love for Israel. And this is why we repent. Before faith in his elect was created, before repentance in his elect was created, and for the duration of their whole life, the favor of God was given to them. God's love does not waver with time. His love, not our actions, are the basis for our repentance. His love and not our actions are the basis for repentance. Israel was moved to repentance because they were certain that God was merciful, even as he is just. But God is only both merciful and just in Christ alone. That is, This passage depends upon Christ Jesus and his work. God can only be just and the justifier of the ungodly Israelite and Gentile in Christ. God is only both just and merciful in Christ. Christ called everyone to to meet him in in repentance. But he called them to repent because he extended mercy to them by his own body and blood. Repentance is not to secure mercy, in other words, as if it were our own work. Even Israel in our own text repents because God has already been merciful. We do not repent to secure mercy. We repent because God is merciful. How could God forgive their sins? How could he be so unjust and as to do audacious sins in, or I've rather, as Israel could do audacious sins in Phineas and Hophni, how could God let them off the hook? Because he didn't let them off the hook. He lets no sinner off the hook. It was simply hooked upon Christ on the cross. The only way in this text we can call God just is by the work of his Son. It is God's love shown in Christ's sacrifice which secures our salvation that we are continually repentant as Christians, as Christians at least, is no longer in an effort to be saved, but because we are saved. And this is what people who are united to Christ do, as we see even in our own text. Because in God's sight, we all have Christ's righteousness. It would be unjust for God to punish us as if we were sinners. Now he punishes us as sons. Because his justice has been fulfilled and he is merciful. We are legally and truly holy and sinless in Christ. Yet in our actions we have things to repent of to our Father. Only if we repent of our own rebellion against God and have faith in the completed work of Christ. So let us turn wholeheartedly to God as Christ did. And serve him alone And trust in the work of Christ, not in our repentance. Turning and repenting of our idols. For only in Christ does justice and mercy unite, that we might be saved in him. Repentance leads to life only because 
It leads to Christ, brothers and sisters, our life, who makes us alive again to repent and the repentance that leads to life, as Acts 11 tells us. Let us go to our great God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have given us repentance, and you have done it in the same manner as you have done of old. And we pray, Lord, as you can do this in an incredible manner for an entire nation and country, we ask, Lord, that you would not only do it in our hearts for those present here in this evening worship, but that you would do it to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, to our children. Lord, that you would work repentance in them as only you can, for we know that we are very much in dependence upon you in these things. Lord, we pray that you would give us the, the words to say, that we might call to repentance as Samuel has done to Israel as you have sent him. We pray that we might also be sent for these things. We ask, Lord, that we would trust in you in these things, not thinking that it is merely our words which does this, although we pray our words would be truthful and they would be scriptural, but Lord, that you would make us bold, knowing that it is you who do these things and not our words. But we pray that it would be from your word, for you work through your word. And Lord, for those who have in action and in life trusted upon you in repentance, have turned from their idols and continually are turning from their idols unto Christ, we pray that you would give us power and you would give us ability as you can only do so for those who are in Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would make us to hate our sin and to love righteousness and to love Christ and as Israel rejoiced truthfully that you came back, that we would rejoice that we are even in your presence morning and evening on your Lord's day, and that we might worship you for our entire lives. We thank you for this, Lord. May you be glorified in us, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.